the return, I mean, okay, you're going to make a five to seven percent return, but the return beyond that and for the neighborhood and for the city where you hope your children live and grandchildren Mm -hmm. live is going to extend beyond your lifetime. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. If you've been listening to the show for a while, hopefully you've been getting a broader understanding of how diverse impact efforts can be. Today's guest, Greg Spilliards, shares with Ed about his journey to impact in the commercial real estate space. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast. I'm your host, Ed Gillentine. I'm here with my good friend, Greg Spilliards. Greg, welcome. Thank you very much, Ed. Appreciate you having me. Greg is the CEO and the managing director of Cushman Wakefield, which is a commercial real estate group here in Memphis. He's been with them for a long time, but kind of a circuitous journey. Uh, Just real quickly, because I don't want to take away from his time, I want to hear his story. I'll give you a little bit of background on Greg. He got a business administration degree at the University of Memphis in 2000, and then some years later... I'm, I'm teeing you up to this great story. He went back and got a Master's of Divinity at seminary, which I find to be fascinating. So now he, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is the CEO and the managing director there at Cushman Wakefield, and he's responsible for their vision, the culture, those types of things, and he's doing a fantastic job. So, Greg, without further ado, give us the cliff note version as best you can of how you got to Cushman Wakefield, how you got into the the real estate world, and um, just sort of your journey there. Uh, I take the journey back to when I was six years old. So this is the Cliff Notes version. I promise I'll fast forward it. But <laughs> when I was six years old, I was sitting in a little Methodist church in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and I wrote a note dropped it in the collection plate, sent it up to the altar to the pastor to say, I'd like a visit from the pastor to tell me what it's like to be a United Methodist pastor. And he showed up at our house that afternoon to That's talk to awesome. me about what it was like to be a pastor. So I had, God had clearly planted a seed for uh, ministerial work within me early on. Um, and I did. it was more than just being a kid, but I, I, I felt drawn to it. But then around that same age, too, I was going to school at a small uh, Episcopal school in Pine Bluff called Trinity Episcopal, and I would sit out in the carpool line waiting on my parents to pick me up, and there were these old, dilapidated, run-down, blighted, whatever you want to call it, Victorian-style homes right across the street from the Episcopal school. I would just sit, and I remember as through the eyes of my youth, look at, the, look at those homes and envision them with life again. And I can specifically remember envisioning families sitting in these homes, enjoying a meal. So that's, those two things were converging even at that point, you know, it was like, okay, this is pastoral call, but I knew that real estate was a strong interest of mine. And mainly, which at the time I I realized was a more of a redemptive perspective of real estate. Um, And then, you know, I go through Elementary years, we moved to Memphis. I go to school here through high school. I attended Christian Brothers High School here, graduated in 95, went to the University of Arkansas, um, and knew then I was on a path to go into commercial real estate. Was at Arkansas for three and a half years and then made the decision to transfer back to Memphis. 
Uh, I had met the girl who had become my wife. I knew at the time, whether she knew it or not, I knew at the time she was going to be my wife. So, and I knew she was going to graduate school here anyway. So I said, well, I'm going back to Memphis because then I can plug in in the city where I know we're going to be and I can start working my way into the commercial real estate world. CBRE was a known company and brand that, that I was aware of. I had applied for an internship there. I did not get the internship, but it only stoked my fire even more right. for wanting to get in there. And uh, finished, graduated with the, with the business degree at University of Memphis in 2000, and immediately transitioned. I, my wife found an ad in the newspaper for CBRE looking for a marketing associate. I go back in there, meet with the same people, and they then hire me that time, fortunately. And, uh, and I started there in June of 01. And so that, you know, that, that was not a position that was thinking about the redemptive aspects of real estate, but I was very much being catapulted into the transactional world of real estate. Right. And June of 01, I'm one of five brokers that are hired to open our East Memphis office. And then, of course, three months later, 9-11 happens. Uh, the, the real estate world was jolted by that. And we've seen that a number of times since then. Sure. But as a 22-year-old, uh, I needed to find my place. It wasn't going to be brokerage. So I started moving into property management. Then through a set of circumstances, started operating in the construction management areas of the business and started really doing projects and work associated with real estate that I never even knew really existed. I, I, didn't, I always right. just knew of the deal or what I saw at the end of the project, but I never really had gotten into the guts of the project. So you're just, literally getting a chance to learn every single aspect. Every aspect. And it was an incredible experience because the people at CBRE, they, I mean, we were, I mean, we, we were very close. Um, and, uh, and they, they just, they knew I didn't know what I was doing. Right. And so, so that was for four and a half years, you know, really working on the, the detailed aspects of real estate. And then I knew I wanted to go back into brokerage eventually. Um, and then this great project came up in 2007 where we were asked to assemble a team to redevelop an industrial park in southwest Memphis called Bellbrook Industrial Park. And uh, it was owned by Trammell Crow Development and Investment out of Fort Worth. And one of the requirements of the team was that we would office at Bellbrook Industrial Park. Uh, retail frontage on Brooks Road. And for those in Memphis and who are familiar with Brooks Road, it's an area of the city that uh, a lot of the economic opportunity investment and, and investment has has passed right. on to southeast Shelby County, particularly industrial real estate has moved on to the bigger box warehouses and has just left all this antiquated 40-year-old space sure. sitting and not, not occupied uh, substantially. So in 2007, with this team of seven people, we went to Bellbrook and we started, we partnered with LRK, Local Architectural Group, and we, uh, we focus on this theme of clean, green, and safe. And we went about our work of investing in the property, of dressing it up. Uh, it was 100 acres. It was 1.6 million square feet. It's about 60% occupied. It felt empty. It felt like a ghost town. It felt scary. And we went off to change that. And I was in it still at that, my, at that time. 
mentally and professionally as it was a transactional endeavor. Mm-hmm. We, as we had met with our client, their plan was that we get in there, we do our thing, and then we sell the property within three years, we get it to 85% occupancy, and everybody wins. Well, officing there was a significant aspect of how this became a transfa- transformational moment in my the career. The idea of being in the middle of it. The idea of being in the middle of it, the idea of being there every morning and every evening, um, seeing the life and the rhythm of that part uh, that part of the city, getting to know the people who are stakeholders in that part of the city, um, getting, to, you know, just simple things like eating at restaurants that I didn't know existed and meeting restaurant owners and getting into even the schools, which would come along a little bit later. I was just, it was beginning to transform the way I thought about real estate. Um, it was more relational and, uh, and we were doing transactions. We were, our mission was to basically take multifamily leasing and make it applicable to industrial leasing. And so it was very simple leases, very straightforward terms. The spaces we had delineated out to where you could go in at 3,000 square feet or 150,000 square feet. We had a spot for you. We could do a transaction quick. We prided ourselves on that. So we were churning transactions, but something else was churning within me of this. It's not about the transaction. It's right. about who's coming in here? Like, who, how is this impacting the area that touches this property? And so that's what got me really working in the schools. I uh, met a gentleman named Albert Crawford who had started the Airways Lamar Business Association um, 20 or so years ago. And Albert really began to mentor me. And really, I really believe God placed him in my life to help me find the reset button. And, uh, and he and I would meet at the Mrs. Winters Fried Chicken on Brooks Road every Thursday morning. And he would download to me his journey. He said he was an angry black man in the civil rights movement. And, and that was his identity. And he was in the middle of the fight and the, and the riots. And he had been beaten. And that was what drove him. And then he all of a sudden, I can't remember, his late 70s, early 80s, he, did, he found Christ, or Christ found him. And he said that my identity became rooted in Christ, and that's who I was. And he said all that anger and everything just disappeared. And he said, and then I began to go a different path of just loving my neighbors and my, loving my neighborhood. He actually has a book called Love Your Neighbors is the name of it. And uh, he just started teaching me about that, how that is the way. Um, not You know, we, we can be driven by many things, but really the way towards community development and community and social peace is by loving one another. Uh, He lived in Bethel Grove. He was very active in Bethel Grove Elementary. And he was just incredibly impactful from 2007 till about midway through 2008. And uh, he and I I ate at Piccadilly on, I think it was a Tuesday afternoon. And uh, the next morning I received a call that he had passed away of a massive heart attack. Wow. Uh, I had the opportunity to speak at his funeral um, and to meet his family, you know, and get to know them more. And and he, I just, I believe God was calling me to to pick up the mantle that that Albert left and and to really follow his footsteps and his way. Well, that didn't exactly align with transactional real estate, right? And not that anything's wrong with transactional real estate. It was or just that pure view of it, but it's just not where I believed I was I was headed. 
Let me interrupt for a second and chase a rabbit because, um, and I will we'll circle back. Talk about redemptive versus transactional versus in our line of work, we call it extractive, right? Um, talk about that in the real estate world and, and how important that is. Yeah, well, it's, you know, transact. everything's a transaction, right? I mean, transaction sure. is kind of rooted with all of it, but but the redemptive aspect is what I go back to the vision when I was six years right. old. It was restorative. It was life giving. It was light and dark. And it was, it's, I saw in it that, yes, we are making transactions. We are in, we are providing jobs. We are bringing businesses back into this community, but there was a, there was a joy that was right. tied to it that, that was more enriching than just the commission check. Right. <laughs> the commission check was nice, but the sure. joy of being in relationship with people. And I, I remember some of the some of the deals that we conducted there, it was on a different level. Uh, you know, it was not just about what was on paper and what we were agreeing to. It was more about, tr- it was about trust. It was right. about, um, I mean, obviously proficiency played a big role in that, but it was about, you know, do, do we trust one another? Yeah. And um, so, you know, the redemptive aspect, and that was the big part of, you know, the journey is I had to, pl- I had to be plucked out of that sure, to yeah. begin to see what the redemptive view was. Sometimes and, I feel like you got to get yanked out of where you are to give you a clearer vision. Like when you're in your day-to-day, your lens, it's, it's almost like that film that gets on the inside of your windshield, right? And you don't really see it until the sun's looking right in it and you're like, man, this is kind of filthy. And I, I know one of the, I guess, paradigms that you and I share this is this idea of redemptive versus extractive. And it goes all the way back to how you view work, how you view um, uh, economics. And so, you know, capitalism is not a religion, contrary to what a lot of people think. Um, free markets, they are, they're very broken. They, they tend to err on the side of extractive. They do seem to me to be more realistic in terms of, of redemptive. But when I see, like to me, the transaction is the trigger that gets the rest of the redemptive going. Extractive seems to be um, transaction, we're done, see you later. Right. And so I feel like, especially with real estate, um, and in the United States, especially, you go back historically, what's this economy built on? It's built on owning a piece of property, leveraging said piece of property to build a house, leveraging that asset to invest in something else. And in the middle of all that flourishing, I think, and I want you to sort of give your thoughts on it, in the middle of all that, you've got a flourishing family, having dinner, lights on, right? You've got community in the neighborhood around you. And so that's where the flourishing comes from. It's way, way more than a transaction. The transaction simply kicks it off. Well, and that that was the providential, you know, plan was for us to locate at the property, was that it, it yeah. wasn't something we could just move on from. The, the work we were doing, we were living with. And uh, that that's a huge aspect of it. And, you know, I, I think, especially in commercial and, and even in residential now, with as many investors there are globally investing, even in Memphis, you know, in, in residential real estate, it's a line item. 
Right. It, it's, um, you know, and it's either performing or it's not. And it doesn't take any account into the human aspect whatsoever. And, and I, I, you know, just to reset, just to know, like, I was very much seduced by the transactional aspect of it. I mean, sure. I was not, in fact, I was incredibly empty during a lot of that period because I was trying to find joy in the transaction and I was not finding it. And it was becoming very frustrating. And I would even say it was probably as when God entered into the, really entered into my wife and I's, you know, perspective there, I was in a very empty place. I was in a very dark place. And it was like he's, he rescued, he came in and rescued me from that and reminded me like of focus more on what this is really all about here. This isn't yeah. about the reason you're being successful here isn't because of your efforts. The reason you're being successful here is because of what you just said. It's the redemption that comes on the other side of the transaction and look at it, look all around. It's happening. Mm-hmm. And Isn't it that, neat that you even had that as a child. I think a lot of times if we go back to our childhood, there's a bit of a vision whether we believe uh, it came from God or it's altruistic or whatever. There's a bit of a vision for that flourishing of whatever direction absolutely. we're going into. Um, so from there then, uh, give us, like, how did you get to seminary? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a super long story, but uh, but I'll just say this this part. My, my wife and I independently began through through prayer... Um, independent of one another, it started experiencing and discerning what we believe was was really a calling for God to move us out of where we we were um, professionally and even locally. It, we would come to find out, and there were many other people that were around us in our community that were saying, "We believe that you know God's calling us to do something different." And um, and seminary had never entered my mind ever. <laughs> I. Honestly, before 2008, I did not know what a Master's of Divinity was. My dad went to seminary, and I remember him studying really hard. He was about your age when he did it, so he had a career. And I remember thinking, I'm, I would never want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, you think, well, how can you use this? You right, know? exactly. And there's no real on, practical applicability of it at all. But but it was clearly what we were supposed to do. There, It was so clear. And we went to worship at Christ Church and. July of 2009, and that day uh, there was an altar call, not an altar call to accept Christ, but it was an altar call to come forward if you ever believed you were being called by God into some vocational aspect of ministry. And we did not, we we didn't have all the every all the pieces together. Sure, we yeah. didn't know what it looked like. But I took my wife's hand as the congregation saying, "Here I am, Lord," and my and we were both very emotional, and um, and walked to the front of the church. And uh, one of the pastors there, a good friend of mine, Jamie Lee, placed a magnet in my hand. It was an Asbury Theological Seminary magnet. And it, it was just, and it wasn't the first time Asbury had come up, but it was like this was just affirming. And um, He didn't ask you if you were lost, did he? He didn't ask us if we were <laughs> lost. Are y'all wandering around here? <laughs> Everybody <laughs> knew. Everybody was kind of like, what are they doing? You know, and, and truly, if the altar hadn't have been where it was, we would have, Fallen. Down. I mean, we were so. It was. It was a very spirit filled moment. That's neat. And uh, and it was incredibly impactful. So at that moment, it was like, okay, th- we're gonna start the wheels. We're gonna. We're gonna. Right. God had already started the wheels. We're like, we're gonna. We're gonna trust that this is where we're headed. And then we had an impactful transaction actually that that got us to where we needed to be based on our 
the commitments we had made to our client. We had this impactful transaction hit very soon after this experience, this um, this experience of committing. And, uh, and it allowed me to go with a clear conscience to my managers at CBRE and to my client and say, this has been great. We've hit all the marks we committed to, but we're, we're this is where we're headed. And just to bring some reality into this, based on how my life had been over the last three or four years, my boss says, if you had given me 100 guesses of what you were coming in here to tell me, that would not have even been not on, on the list. The list. Right. And uh, I'm like, well, that, you know, I get it. Uh, and I'll, I'm convicted by that. But, Wasn't uh, on your list either. <laughs> and so that started there. And we were going to move, but it was 2009. I mean, middle of the recession, the worst time in the century. And it was November of 2009, worst time of the year to put a house on the market. Put the house on the market. It didn't sell. We keep going. I start taking classes online at Asbury. I'm still working at CBRE. And I just CBRE was so gracious in saying, you've got a job here. As long as you're here in Memphis and you're able to do both, like you've got a job. So this goes on until May. I already had someone lined up to take my role. We just felt like we needed to go ahead and make a move. So Christchurch actually offered us a job to come on board as director of outreach in May of 2010. Um, and my my plan at that time was that I was going to I was going to take six credit hours a semester <laughs> towards a ninety six credit hour degree. So wow. I was going to do this for until I retired. I was going to work at the local church here, and at that time it looked like it was going to be Christ Church, and uh, and we would just do this on our own schedule. Did that for a year, all great, and then you know we. We had an, another family situation going on. We were looking for the right school for our oldest daughter. And God led us to this school in Lexington, Kentucky, which was 12 miles from Asbury Theological Seminary, where I was enrolled in li- online. At the time, I had 23 credit hours under my belt. And it really mapped out perfectly for us to move to Wilmore to go to resident seminary and get the rest of my 96 credit hour degree while our oldest daughter attended this school. And so in a three-week time span in the summer of 2011, we rented our house out here. Uh, I quit my job at the church and we moved to Wilmore, Kentucky. And that's um, crazy. It was the craziest thing we've ever done. The path was not clear of what it was going to look like logistically or even financially, but God met us every step of the way, every single step, and even in humorous ways at times. Um, You know, we were just so fearful of uprooting from this life that we thought was everything, which in large part had a lot of trappings to it, uh, like that we just know of like East Memphis life, you know, like we were very much steeped in that. Mm -hmm. And we just couldn't imagine uprooting from that. And we did, and we were so fortunate to... At first, we actually lived in this 165-year-old farmhouse that set up on a hill. It was called Sycamore Hill. You can't make this stuff up. And we would sit out on the porch at night. A whole Everything in the household would stop at sunset because at a particular – well, most of the year, the sun would set right between these sycamore – line of sycamore trees. And I would laugh because it was God saying – you were worried about leaving something, and look where I brought look you to. Got and you, really, yeah. it's not even about this, but I'm just sure. doing this to humor you and you know, to say, like, could you have asked for anything yeah. better? 
but ultimately we we could find something better and that was we we were there for a year and um my wife and i we, we were a little we were about a mile and a half out of the main town area of town and bill latimer who uh, lives in union city he had uh, made a substantial gift to Asbury Theological Seminary to improve their family housing. Mm-hmm. They had developed this family housing. We had put our names on the waiting list, and in that summer of 2012, a spot came up at uh, Callis Village is the name of it. And we both said, you know, we're living in this spacious farmhouse out on Sycamore Hill watching the sunset every night, and we're like, no, we're supposed to move into Callis Village. We've moved 420 miles to be a part of the community. We need to right. move one more mile. And that really initiated the most transformative season of our lives. For two years, we lived in Callis Village. We lived in a community of people from all over the world. Uh, my kids interacted and played with kids out in the in the cul-de-sac and and around town that literally had. I mean, they they had a world map on their on yeah. their r- wall in their room that had thumbtacks everywhere they knew people from. and um, I want to come back to that in a second because I think it goes back to when you were six, mm-hmm. envisioning those houses with lights and meals and, Absolutely. and flourishing community. But it also, but before I get to that, I think I heard you say basically y'all had no clue what you were doing. You were taking a step at a time, and I think that's important because I've never met anybody that's having impact, that's got it mapped out, the couple, uh, I'm sure there's people that do that, right? Um, but I'm sure it never ends up the way they think. And so there's this idea of just get started, just take it a step at a time. How important was just taking the first step, whether it was that altar call or whether it was going to Kentucky? How important was that? It was everything. Mind? It was everything. I mean, now I know Jesus says you need to count the call, you know, count the calls, and, and we did. We we weren't just blind. I mean, we were actively like thinking through our resources and we were thinking through the the expense of it. Right. Um, but it was it didn't necessarily add up, right? But we knew where the gaps were. So we were we were we were educating ourselves on where we needed to be. But the biggest step was when it was so clear we were to go the school that that popped into our view for for our Megan, our oldest daughter. Right. For us, that was God saying this is what you're to do, and I'm providing for your most complex need for yeah. your family. I'm gonna I'm gonna show up there, and so because I showed up there, I'm gonna show up in every other way, and not just show up. I'm gonna show up with extravagance, and so really at that point, the key thing was selling our house here. And my wife and I, I mean, I remember distinctly sitting in our den, and us both praying, saying, "God, you have clearly called us to go." This house is the only thing that stays in our way, and we know you'll you'll take it. Mm-hmm. And we we just and we we gave that over to him that night. The next morning, I'm walking through Christ Church offices, and I overhear a conversation where someone needs to buy in the White Station School District. They need to be in in three weeks. They need to have an MLGW bill in their name so they can get their kids in White right. Station, and. I hear the person they're talking to say, have you talked to Greg Spilliards? Because I think they're about to move. And wow. within two days, we they signed a lease to live in our house for three years, which is the exact amount of time we were going to be there. And and the key here is that they needed that. That was, some, that was a way God was working in their family, right. in their life. And because we were being obedient, God was able to, to bless 
an, another family and, and their and their obedience. And right. so it was just it was eye opening. It was a, it was a key factor in in our realization of of, of the that we all are we all are part of the same community in the kingdom and right. and that he's working through all that and so you know so the house deal within 2 days of of that prayer and of giving it over to God he did something more miraculous with it than we ever could have thought about doing and yeah that's no knock on real estate agents right <laughs> right and i'm i'm hearing not only taking that first step you have this vision, but maybe it's cloudy. Now you got to take the first step, but that doesn't mean you just jump off a cliff, right? There's, that's right. it sounds like you guys are using your brain. Yeah, that's you're trying much. to think through it, but there does come a point where this act of faith happens, and we talk about it in the book um, about faith has the idea, and I'm going to separate it from religious faith for a second, but just continuing on when it's not really clear. But that doesn't mean you don't use the experiences, the skill set that you have, that God's given you, that you've built. And I, it sounds like you guys, you guys were really wrestling with that. But I think that's something that everybody that's trying to have impact is wrestling with. Now, um, there's a million different directions we can go. So after seminary, you end up back in Memphis, back... Um, in the professional world, the transactional world, and yet you're different. Yeah. And so why in the world would a high-performing, highly profitable, I think billion dollars in a real estate company like Cushman Wakefield say, hey, Greg, <laughs> with your seminary degree, we want you to lead a bunch of high-performing men and women that have a tendency because they came up in the industry to be transactional. We want you to lead them and guide our culture. How in the world did that happen? <laughs> so, uh, am I wrong about all that? Is that a uh, no? Um, clarify if I am. I'll there, put it that way. There are particular individuals who are a part of a lot of that. That uh, it wasn't this big, ambiguous Cushman thing. There were individuals yeah. and relationships, but uh, I would. So February of 2014. It's uh, four months before I'm graduating with my MDev. Uh, I, I was, had the opportunity to be a part of a, a faith and work fellowship uh, that was sponsored by the Kern Foundation. And that had actually allowed me to meet with a guy named Bob Lupton in Atlanta. He was in Wilmore to speak at our chapel service. And Should we uh, shout out one of the best books that I've seen? Yes. What was his book? Well, Toxic Charity. Yeah, Toxic Charity, for those of you listening. And it, and it was coming along right books. at the same time as uh, When Helping Hurts, yep. which both of those books really were transforming my, Me too. my thought about who we are in relationship and yep. with others. and What is poverty? Yeah, and, and even yeah. recognizing that I, too, am a stranger. I mean, that right. I, too, experience poverty. and. Yep. Um, and it may not be materially, even though in Wilmore I did feel like it was material poverty occasionally. But um, but anyway, he comes to town, and I sit down with him, and I said, I am about to graduate in MDiv. I'm on track to be an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, and I have had the opportunity to see different models of ministry, particularly rooted in the business world, and I just believe I'm supposed to go back to Memphis and engage in in that work and he very confidently replied he said you're going to do that you're going to go back to memphis you're going to find a sponsor 
and that's the work you're going to do. Because what I said I wanted to do was basically what we had done at Bellbrook, but right. across the city of Memphis. And I said, you know, I, I want I want to go back and I, I want to go into one of these firms that understands all aspects of commercial real estate transaction or project or construction or whatever it is and angle that towards underserved areas of the city. And, of course, there was nothing like that really being done. Right. And he says, you're going to go back and find a sponsor. And I'm thinking, who in the world would sponsor something like this? So we moved back in May of 2014, moved back into the house we had left three years before, hang all the pictures in the old nail holes as if, I mean, it, again, God showing up with a bit of humor. I mean, it was like we had gone to eyes and were placed back down in Kansas. <laughs> it was really wild. Um, I remember we got up the next Sunday morning, went and taught my parents' Sunday school class, we're laying in the same bed we were laying in three years before, uh, scared to death. And um, and that next Friday, um, I was introduced to Larry Jensen, who I knew through my, my 10 years at CBRE, but Larry had led um, commercial advisors, Cushman and Wakefield Commercial Advisors. He, had, he and Wyatt Aiken founded it uh, in the early 90s. And um, I'd never actually interacted with him, but so I – this contact I had at Cushman, he said, you really need to sit down with Larry and explain and describe your vision for him. So I sit down with him and I, I say exactly what I just said about how this vision of partnering with an organization. And he looks at me and he says, I've wanted to do something like this for 10 years. He said, I've, I wow. just have not, he goes, I've, I have angled my serve service towards like serving on boards. Right. And, and he goes, that's about 50% of my time. And then 50% of my time is running this business. Um, he said, I want to do this. He's, and so, you know, fast forward, um, in November of 2014, I come on board to start a division of the company called Community Advisors. And it was really, it was just me. And I was going out and meeting with various nonprofits and faith-based organizations and pitching to them what we were looking to do and our, what our capabilities were. And what I found immediately was just open arms. People were going, oh my gosh, this is one of the most difficult aspects of running our organization is figuring out facilities. And this is the most contentious aspect of a lot of our board meetings. And they're looking at me like, you're the guy that's going to come fix all this. And I'm looking at them going, I really only know industrial real estate. So I'm going to need the support and the help of this entire organization of Cushman and Wakefield Commercial Advisors to help me do this work. And so that really bonded me with the with the brokers and with the property management team to say, look, I don't know where I'm kind of the the tip of the spear here, but I don't know I don't have the bandwidth or the expertise to do all this. So y'all are coming with me, you know? And I was so just thankful and grateful that so many were like, let's do it. This is what we want to do too. It matched the culture of the company that had really been formed since the beginning. And this was all set up, right? I mean, this was all totally a God thing that just set it up for me to be there. And uh, and so we did that. that. That was the work I did first right out of the gate, started working with Porter Leith. They were looking to do their site selection on their academies, um, help them with the acquisition of the property in Longview Heights, which is where the first academy they, they built has been and for four years now. Um, we've done the site selection for them in Fraser and in, uh, in Orange Mound, which is going to be opening in January. But um, also <laughs> got me in this crazy journey with Tom Shadiak and Memphis Rocks and 
and plug me into the neighborhood of Soulsville. And I found myself at neighborhood association meetings, you know, on Tuesday nights in Soulsville and getting to know the neighbors. And, and that truly is where I find the real joy is, right. uh, and I had to also learn just to keep my mouth shut and, and just to show up and be present and to listen and learn um, and have my preconceived perspectives or ideas just totally thrown out and have them rebuilt by the people who live in the neighborhood, by the people who know what they're talking about and who live in it every day. And I don't think I would understand that if I hadn't have had that experience on Brooks Road. Right. Um, even though I didn't live in Whitehaven, I spent enough time in Whitehaven to to understand a little bit at a deeper level of what all what the challenges were, what the opportunities were, and um, and so that was the joy of my work. I was convinced that we could be sustainable, you know, as a private, you know, we could be a private center within commercial advisors, and um, and that work continued until 2017, when Larry came to me and and said. Um, you know, we want you to continue the community work, but you are aligned with the culture. We do, you know, I had, I, I believe if you inter, if you were interviewing anyone else in the company, they would say that I, I had earned the trust and respect of the team members there at Commercial Advisors. And he asked if I would transition into a leadership role while still doing the community piece. At first, I was very hesitant because I didn't want it to just empty out into into not being an initiative, and I still I still remain focused on that. But but the opportunity that came actually was for it to expand out and not be a, a compartmentalized right. aspect of our company, but to be a very real part of what each one of our team members sort of get into the DNA. In. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Right, not a not a side issue. Right, not we make some money and we give it away. But how can we make this a part of the of the overall company? And and where everyone plays a part in it, you know, um, yeah. from from brokerage to asset management to construction management, everyone has played a significant role in in providing our services, you know, to organizations that that need them. And and it's not necessarily pro bono. I mean, you know, right. it's it's there's a there is real, there's a transaction usually there's. There's a real service, um, but it's usually, you know, our the way we, our fee structure is based on, you know, we only get a percentage of what we, we, we earn for you. You right. know, it's not so much, you know, you're going to pay us this and hope it works out. Yep. So, um, and that's just the way the real estate. Economics out. is interesting to me and, and how it can be almost like a guardrail on the side of the road. And uh, whether you're nonprofit impact, straight up for profit, I think that's that can be super healthy in helping nonprofits, for example, make decisions. I've also found that any of the uh, free stuff, the pro bono stuff that we do, does not have a high likelihood of success because I think people value what they pay for. Um, there's a lot of nuance there, and, I mean, it really gets me fired up to hear about what you guys are doing because you're making it work within a sustainable profitable organization wide way that I think is redemptive. I think it gives back. It's, it's wholesome. It lets the community flourish. Right. Right. And so I think focusing only on profit or only on giving away or only on anything. Right. I think there's a lot of analogies to the human body, right? It all has to work together. Let me ask you real quickly, 
I hear two organizations that were willing to step out of the mold. Um, one was CBRE that said, you know what? You're getting it done. As long as you're in Memphis and can continue to get it done, we want to support you. And then Larry comes along and says, I know this may sound crazy, but we want to do that. Um, which, by the way, what Larry's saying, I I think there's more and more men and women wanting to do that, organizations wanting to do that. But Larry took the step, right? How important was that, not only to you, but when you think, like when you talk to other organizations that want to do this, I think of the impact Larry's had. Yeah, he's done boards and he's run a successful business, but arguably giving that organization a shot at changing their DNA and just really grounding it might be one of his greatest impacts that he's had. Um, I'll shut up. Talk about that for a minute. The the fact that CBRE and commercial advisors have taken on that per, the, the perspective they took on in, in our journey is a testament, really, to Memphis and to Memphians and to and and to who, I mean, our our cor- the corporate citizens of the city are incredibly gracious and. Um, and so that that's a huge factor in this, and that's a huge factor of why while living in the bluegrass of Kentucky and just beautiful part of the country, we, we yearn to be back in Memphis. We yearn to be back among our community and and the people we love, and so that that's a that's a huge deal. And I'm glad you meant, you you brought up the fact that both of those organizations stepped out and and did that through our journey. But um, what I think Larry really did by coming on board and taking that step is he gave other business leaders and organizations the permission to do it. Yep. Um, I, we immediately, there was one project we were working on, um, with a local, uh, legal firm and, um, they, they were all in and they did pro bono all the way through. In fact, the attorney who was working on it had to go back and apply for more pro bono hours to get right. the deal done. But they knew, they knew what we were doing and they knew our role in the in the in the in that particular project, and they wanted to partner in that, and uh, and so it gave them permission. We had engineering firms reach out and say we want to do this same type of work. Now, it wasn't just about representing clients who are nonprofits and faith-based organizations. It's about representing anyone. We right. I mean, we're representing the largest property owners in the world. I mean, industrial real estate in this city is white hot. It is one of the hottest industrial markets in the country. And we're representing many of those property owners. So this isn't just about, you know, uh, working with, uh, there's a joke going around, T-repping churches and nonprofits is something people love to, there's a little jingle that they would sing. (laughs) That's not just what we're doing. You know, what we're doing is we're, we're doing some of the most complex real estate transactions that this city faces, but then we're taking that and that experience and doing what we know how to do because our clients have taught us how to do it right. and pouring that in. So really we're giving the same best of class real estate service to these organizations, which then the whole ecosystem flourishes. Right. So yes, we, you know, we're representing organizations that are adding 500 to a thousand jobs in the city, but then we also can represent Advanced Memphis right. to acquire a warehouse on Suzette where they're doing very intensive, you know, support for entrepreneurs and for workforce development. It all fits in to the same community. I love the balance 
of it. And I think that's an important word. And I think it kind of is a good segue to maybe a project or two that you guys are working on. You want to talk about that kind of from a high level? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, one thing that, so the company, there are a number of projects we're working on in, at a community level, um, neighborhood level, you know, that are, you know, from a project management standpoint, like one, we're, we're currently doing the project management for Believe Memphis Academy. It's a fourth through eighth grade school in Alcee Ball. Uh, actually, students showed up this morning. Awesome. So we, we hope and pray that's going well. My yeah. heart is with them um, right now. Um, uh, but one, one area that we've really focused on, and this is something that is sort of, it's kind of a side project from commercial advisors. It's we're using re- commercial advisors is providing resources to do this, but we're trying to find a way to bring equity into or equity opportunity into neighborhoods where there seems to be multiple pieces in place for flourishing, but right. maybe there's just a component or two that are missing. And of course, in that component or two of flourishing that's missing, we also see latent physical assets that could be brought back online, could have, you know, the lights turned back on or services turned back on and actually provide a space for for business to operate. We're engaging the neighborhood first and creating a vision for that. what this needs to look like. Maybe so, ask them what they need. Exactly. And that's something we just, you know, we have failed at so right. often. As we, and, and then, you know, we've, or we've gone into communities, and when I say we, I mean anyone, you know, who takes it upon themselves to try to save something. Right. And and it just, it, it often fails because it's like we come in, we charge in, and, and it doesn't really connect. And we don't really know what's, I mean, That's people why don't. Helping Hurts and um, yes. um, Toxic Charity, Huge. I think, are so important. And I think also the idea of best practices out of balance. That's why I love that word. Best yep. practices out of balance. What works in Detroit's fantastic. That doesn't mean it's going to work here. And you know this as well as I do. What works in 38126 with Advanced Memphis doesn't work in the Hurt Village District or That's Pinch exactly District. Right. There's so, so many factors that go into that. So right. right now, I mean, an area that we have spent a, a good bit of time in is Soulsville, mm-hmm. um, which is bounded by Bellevue uh, to the east, um, uh, Mississippi to the west, and then Crump to the north and South Parkway to the south. The, those kind of the boundaries we, you know, we've we've determined is Soulsville. There's a lot of argument around that of whether yeah. that's accurate or not. But then you have at the core of the neighborhood. You have where Soulsville Charter School is located. You have Delta Prep. You have Memphis Rocks. You have Stacks Museum. You have Lemoyne Owen. You have all these incredible community assets there, right in the neighborhood. Where where's the other piece? You know, where's right. the private sector piece? Where's mm-hmm. the economic? So what we believe is that you've actually got to have some catalytic event or a catalytic. Um, uh, investment to get something over over the over the uh, goal line. I love that word too. So there's this, you know, so there are businesses that are operating in the neighborhood yeah. who would significantly benefit from improved commercial space. So mm-hmm. we're going to those businesses and we're engaging them and asking, you know, what would be ideal for you to have on a main thoroughfare here that could help you, you know, really thrive. Yeah. And then based on what the feedback is they give us, we put that into a vision plan and we go out to the larger community seeking investment at a, a moderate to sure. lower rate of return, yeah. but it's sustainable. And it's not something that's going to lose money. It's 
It's not right. going to compete with your market investment. Sure. But what's great about it is it's considered a legacy investment and where you're able to diversify your portfolio or whatever you're looking to do, and you can actually put it into an impact project, something like redeveloping the corner uh, building at Macklemore and College, yep. uh, where that could all of a sudden become a thriving location for not only the students who are at Soulsville Charter School or the parents who are coming into mm -hmm. the neighborhood to pick their students up, but it's a great place for Lemoyne Owens students. It all feeds into the ecosystem, and it's not it's not us doing it. It's right. a, it's the only role we have in it is is connecting the dots. Almost just the connector. And By the way, are, not to get too technical, you can fund that with a donor advised fund in many cases, either absolutely. via a loan or whatever. So you're taking, you may not get market return. But you just took a heck of a lot of, you know, tax uh, implications off the table, that's right. right? And it's uh, to me that's amazing, and um, and it's it's wholesome, right? It's balanced. I, I interviewed uh, the My City Rights people the other day. Evidently, they, if you will, lose about a thousand dollars per scooter they put on the road, right? So they're subsidizing that. However. Uh, because our uh, public transit system, as I understand it, it'll get you where you need to go, but it is not efficient. So you think about those those catalytic needs in that neighborhood. If you can't get to a job, if it's going to take you two hours to get to a job, and if one bus goes down, you're in trouble, that's a problem. But if you've got a scooter that's affordable, right, that you can get to these closer proximity areas, well, five years of kicking in $1,000 per scooter has a catalytic effect. And I see that in the Soulsville area. I see it all across Memphis. If you can just, if you guys can connect yep. that missing piece, um, Memphis is an unbelievable city. I think they're unbelievable cities all over the U.S. They just got to have the Larry Jensen, the CBREs that are willing to take a risk and give, I love how you put it, give permission to other businesses to take a risk um, that can catalytically explode, I'm not sure that's a word, catalytically explode um, impact flourishing in Memphis it, and, and around the world. And the word is really leverage. If people Le can think right. of it as leverage, it. my wife and I have, I think this originated when we were talking about decorating our house, but a small difference can make all the difference in the world. Yep. And we, nothing is by accident. Nothing, everything we see around us, whether it is flourishing or blighted, it's, there's a reason. Right. And we have to dig into what that reason is. And so if you think of a, and from a leveraging standpoint of, you know, the thousand dollar gap that just needs to be filled to put a scooter on the street or, or the $10,000 that can go into catalyzing this development in Soulsville, the return, I mean, okay, it's you're going to make a 5 to 7% return, but the return beyond that and for the neighborhood and for the city where you hope your children live and grandchildren mm -hmm. live is going to extend beyond your lifetime. As an example, I think mathematically the My City Rides people said that uh, for that $1,000, they pick up, I think, $14,000 a year of economic benefit, just savings from the to, uh, the city government, as I understood it. So you do that times whatever the life of the scooter is. Let's just say it's three years. You know, that's almost sixty thousand dollars. That's huge. That's a pretty dang good return for a thousand dollar investment. And you see that trickling out across the city. Um, I think it's amazing. Um, I got to land the plane. 
Okay. So um, you've talked about like 10 things that would be uh, a legit podcast in its own. So we're going to wrangle you back in. Uh, the problem with you is you're you're in the city of Memphis, so you're easy for me to call up and pester. Uh, <laughs> so you may have to move back to Kentucky. I don't know. But then we'll do it over the phone. I really, uh, and, and I'm going to say this to our listeners, one of the great things about what Greg has done with the seminary degree, and I would say this to those of you that are thinking and going, thinking about going back and getting, you know, business degrees or even a philosophy degree, as you can tell, Greg communicates this nuanced subject really well, and I think we need people that are educated. Yeah, you need people making the transactions go down. You need Steve Nash and his team on the ground. Um, You need Roshan Austin and Orange Mound. You need those people, but you also need people that can communicate the vision. And I would put Greg in that sort of category. He's kind of got a a foot in in both areas, on the ground, but also the same as a Brian Fickert or a Bob Lupton that are communicating the need for this. And so I appreciate that. Um, We we try to wrap up with what I call rapid fire. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the – on the spot, but we're going to start with something that, that I'll let you warm up a little. Favorite ice cream, flavor and brand. All right, uh, Bluebell Cookie Two Step. Okay, that is pretty good. I hadn't seen that one in a while. Yeah, it's well, it's probably was it a special edition or something? Or did I, y'all eat I, it all? It was. I think we it's all in our <laughs> freezer. <laughs> gotcha. Best donut in Memphis or the United States? Oh, I mean Gibson's, and I usually get the apple fritter. Oh man, I'm not an apple fritter guy, but like. A year or two ago, I got a hot one, it's like fresh out. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Your head will spin for at least eight <laughs> my, hours afterwards. My head still spinning <laughs> thinking about it. All right, so um, a little bit more serious. Favorite quote? Oh, gosh. Um, if you can dream it, you can do it. Awesome. Isn't that the isn't that the Mickey the Walt Disney quote? Sounds close enough to me. I was going to give you. I was about to ask, is that original with you, or it sounded sort of Disney? That, that it's it's what we. It, <laughs> my daughter, she, we didn't think she was ever going to figure out how to ride her bike. Yeah, it's taking her forever. I mean, and one morning, I got a kid like that. She gets up, and she goes out, and she gets on her bike and starts riding. And she comes. We weren't even with her. She right. came in and she says, "Hey, I'm riding my bike." What? How did you? And she said I, last night I had a dream about riding my bike, and it just clicked. There you and go. And so, if you can dream it, you can do it. Power of the dream. I like that. We'll give her credit for that. <laughs> Favorite book? It could be a book you're reading now. It could be something that changed your life. I, I'll say "Divine Conspiracy" by Dallas Willard was significant uh, in all of, in, in at least the context that we're talking about today. I've had like 28 people tell me to read that book and it's in my iPad and it just looks long. And so it's I hadn't worked up the courage to and do And you got to read every page about three times before you move to the next one. Oh dear. One. But yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm committed. I'm committed. <laughs> well, we can read it together. <laughs> oh yeah. There you go. Like some accountability. <laughs> we can meet at Mrs. Winters, I mean, except there is no. Are, one, are there any more Mrs. Winters? I don't think so. That one. On, that was sad. That went on Brooks Road closed not too long after Albert passed away. Unfortunately, we used to go to the y'all might have been the, keeping them in business here Thursday morning. <laughs> we used to go to the one on um, Stage Road and Sycamore View. Yeah, um, that sweet tea was amazing. Yes, it was. Most influential person in your life, and real quickly, why? I will say, it, people the people who really influenced me are the faculty at Asbury okay. Theological Seminary. And and I've said this a number of times, even recently as I've thought more about it, I've never been in the company of 
a group of people that do something with the excellence that they do it. And I know this sounds like a plug for Asbury. It's really not. Right. It's it is true. I mean, I I was kind of blown away really um, by when I showed up on campus. I mean, I. I mean, I was taking classes online, but when I arrived on campus and I was in these classes, I mean, we had a professor, David Bauer, Dr. David Bauer. He had taught Matthew, inductive Bible study, using Matthew as the text for 30 years. Wow. And updated his slides every fall of wow. things that he discovered. Yeah. And this guy is a genius. A lot of professors Photographic memory. Like, right. And, I mean, it just – that just blows me away. And so I use it – I use that as, like, accountability. Am I – what am I? It doesn't matter what profession you're in. Are you doing? Are you entering it in, into it with excellence and dedication? And and that's yep. I saw it over and over and over again through the fact. That's really cool. And in all seriousness, uh, hopefully, an encouragement to educators out there. That Absolutely, crazy influence for good or evil, and that's why the excellence is is important. Because um, talk about a slog. Thirty years. I mean, you're doing a lot of the same stuff over and over. And I've always I tell my kids. Don't be that smart aleck to your professor. They've already heard your comment, right. right? They've heard it a thousand times. They don't think it's funny. What's amazing, though, you, if you ask David Bauer what his favorite pericope of Matthew is, yeah, it's the genealogy. That's that's amazing. I, <laughs> I got to talk to that guy. I just finished reading through uh, uh, numbers, and uh, I confess I skimmed all of the baguettes. <laughs> Brother, thanks for coming. It's been amazing. Um, I really appreciate it. We'll have to circle back. There's so much to talk about. And all you guys, that you, all that you're doing at uh, Commercial Advisors, just really amazing. For our listeners, I hope it's been really helpful. It's been fun for us to do. And uh, until next time, all the best. Thank you for listening. We love your feedback, so please let us know what you thought about this episode as well as what you'd like to hear more of in the future. For more information, impact resources, or to purchase a copy of the book, Journey to Impact, visit edgillentine.com. That's E-D-G-I-L-L-E-N-T-I-N-E.com. The book is also available through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Target.com. For Ed Gillentine speaking inquiries or advertising opportunities, send us an email at ajourneytoimpact at gmail.com. This has been a presentation of the Journey to Impact podcast team. Executive producer, Ed Gillentine. Associate producer, Meredith Taylor. Produced and edited by Joey Woodruff. Special thanks to Stephen Chandler.